Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Benetta, and as always, we are in studio downtown Salem. I uh, lost my voice and recovering from a minor cold, so my voice is a little raspy, so I apologize. But uh, we have a returning guest today, so I'm just going to jump right into to our episode. So I'm going to skip the whole spiel, skip intros. Uh, this guest has been on our show two other times, so if you want to get to know him a little bit better, you can always go back and listen to those episodes, but it's Chad Ford. So welcome, Chad. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me back. Always awesome uh, to be in Salem and see the work that Mount West and Groundwork are doing. Yeah, so... We're happy, we, we, we've had you back consistently to be a, you know, a guest, a speaker, presenter to our leadership cohort, which changes every year. So fresh, fresh people, fresh leaders in to, to be with. Um, and we just, you know, love what you have to share so much. We keep wanting to have you back. Obviously, you and I have a much longer history. So um, there's that. But, but uh, it's just a pleasure always having you having you here. So yeah, that's I, I've said this, I think on this show before that, you know, I work with a lot of nonprofits and a lot of different organizations. And I, I really think that what you're doing here is unique. And I, I think it's a model that, that is going to bear great fruit. Uh, I think it's probably already is, but you know, down the road. And so, yeah, whatever I can do to support and cheerlead it on is, is awesome. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this, uh, I usually mention this in our intro, but but I think it pertains to what you just said and, uh, and maybe can provide some backdrop to our conversation we have today. But, but our, our vision here, you know, at Groundwork is to be a catalyst for transformational change. So we've been really enthralled with that word transformation and what it means in relationships. What does that mean in an organization? What does that mean at a community scale? And, uh, you know, I found myself really digging into to what can make that possible at the community and what kept what kept coming up over and over. And this started with some of our outward mindset work here in the community was the importance of leadership and uh, having leaders uh, really lead the charge in the community to be the ones that come together um, is, is crucial in a large scale change at a community level. So that's what's led us here. That's what groundwork, that's why we exist is we want to be a catalyst for that. Uh, we don't believe that we are the transformational change, but we we do feel like we can help create a condition for it. Um, part of which is bringing sectors and people from all over together, starting with leaders. So, I do think that can be rep- replicated in other in other places. I do believe that. Yeah, and I actually think it's the right approach, right? Like, um, in many ways, you're creating space. That's where I sort of think about, you know, like my specialties in conflict, maybe a little less so in leadership, but I would I would say that. If you ask most leaders like what skill set they need the most in their in their job, it's probably conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you start thinking about community community work and a, a lot of the types of leaders that you work with, whether it's education, law enforcement, government, what have you. And uh, you know, one of the ways to sort of think about conflict is our inability to collaboratively solve the problems that mm-hmm. we have. Right? Because because we can't collaborate together, we 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 end up in conflict with each other and it tends to turn destructive and when all of that's sort of happening one of the biggest impediments to getting to transformation is there doesn't feel like there's space like physical space emotional space um to really explore and get past all of that to start collaborating again Mm -hmm. 
And so when I think about organizations like yours that are creating space and catalysts, like I, I think this is one of the most important of the jobs of peace building is to go into areas where people are struggling to collaborate and not solve problems for people, because I, I actually don't think that's good peace building work, mm-hmm. but create space that's invitational for people to come in and feel comfortable enough to actually start the collaboration process, which they, they and only they alone really understand the contours and details of the projects that they're working on. So mm-hmm. they are the experts that ultimately need to get there. And if you can give people tools uh, in that space so that they can actually go out and create other spaces within their organizations and what have you, I think that's a, that's a long-term sustainable model that really works. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I learned, uh, first learned that obviously from, from you and, and when I first studied, uh, you know, peace building and, and over several years been trying to find what's, what, you know, how can I contribute to that, that goal of, of, uh, you know, being an influence for good and, and helping establish peace wherever I'm at. And, and, uh, and that's been part of the, my, you know, the personal journey of what does it mean to create the space uh, where I'm at and, and, uh, you know, develop this, this interest in, in working with leaders and understanding their headaches. You know, when I first moved here and just understanding the headaches of, of leaders of different sectors and, and how there's so much common, you know, mm-hmm. there's just a huge commonality in their headaches and, uh, and, and how lonely leadership can be for them. Um, and so the whole idea of how do we create a space where, where one leaders aren't lonely, but they can find that the, we were talking pre-recording, which I hope we get into that. It's not their own ground because there's a lot of in a community defending your turf, right? Yeah. You got to defend your ground. Um, uh, but it's actually all of our ground and this is our community and how can we, you know, come together, um, to make our community a better place. And, and the influence that we have as an organization at Mountain West uh, is with leaders. And so yeah. that was that was the spot that we, you know, we really dug into was, well, we have an influence with leaders and we can bring leaders together. And and uh, and for me, I've been learning, you know, as I've dove into transformation, it's it's really a learning process. Transformation is learning and it's being open to to learning and open to to different things. And 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 so how can we learn together um, as leaders um, and in a community? What can we, what, what can we learn um, about one another and about, about the community to, to make those steps forward? Um, and, but, and, and ironically, right? Like what you're trying to achieve is so challenging in conflict spaces where um, being open to learning gets shut down, um, right? Where I get defensive and start to stonewall and, and, and build walls because I out, out of protection and, and out of, out of a sense of fear. I lose curiosity about whatever I perceive to be the other side or the obstacle. And I feel like I know who they are, what their motives are and everything else. And so like everything that you're actually trying to inspire is kickstarting a process that conflict actually shuts down in our Mm -hmm. brains. And uh, that's, you know, to me always where the work as a, as a conflict mediator begins is I kind of come under the assumption by the time I'm working with them, that that process has been shut down. Yeah. Um, right. I'm defensive. I'm dug in, stonewalling. I'm defending my ground. 
I know exactly who my enemy is and what they think and why they think that way. And, yeah. and, and I feel like the only way to win this conflict is for them to go away somehow mm-hmm. or, or cave in. And, and of course we know that that, that actually is going to lead to really destructive. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to actually pour gasoline on the fire, um, if you will. And then, but then we're going to throw our hands up in the air and say, the reason that this isn't getting solved is not because I'm going about it the wrong way. It's because of them. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I think we're, we're in an interesting time. Like this, this has always been true about conflict from the beginning of the world and, t- and t- until now, but we're in an interesting time where I think we see so much, we're in an interesting time where we see so much polarization right now. And there's, this combination of massive amounts of misinformation yeah. that we're bombarded with every day. Yet we've never been more confident that we actually know what the truth is. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that paradox to be so interesting um, as a mediator. Like we can, we acknowledge these two things that are happening at once. We are being pummeled by bad information all the time, mm-hmm. often by people who have incentive. They're doing it deliberately. At times, and sometimes they're doing it not deliberately. They're just they're just sharing. You know, the the internet has become a giant gossip space where yeah. I heard, and you know that that can be enough. Yet we're more dug in. That that should lead us to a level of humility about our truths and what we actually sort of know. But I think it's the vo- sheer volume of information, the the fact that we get in these information bubbles mm-hmm. um, with like minded people kind of telling us and re- reinforcing and giving us justification for what we believe that, that we walk away thinking that I know yeah. what the the right and the wrong here. I know who's right and who's wrong. And interestingly, it's almost always I'm right and, and, and they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and now my job as a, as a good moral ethical person, we were talking about this a little bit before the show started is to stand my ground. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's interesting, you know, your, your project's called groundwork. Uh, and I don't think this is what you mean by groundwork, <laughs> by the way. Um, but it, it sort of starts with this idea that good people, moral people, um, the right choice is to defend the, the belief, uh, belief system, ideology, faith, whatever, whatever it is that, that we're, debating right now uh and 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 somehow there's some sort of virtue um in that Mm -hmm. and and to me those are always the most difficult conflicts right chris because it's um that when i was in grad school i i got to study um with jane uh doherty um who is now at eastern mennonite um university she's a professor there and she I can't remember whether she worked for the FBI or the ATF. I can't remember, but she worked with one of those law enforcement agencies and they were involved with Waco Mm -hmm. on Texas and the branch Davidians and whatever. And when she was writing her dissertation, she kind of quit that work and decided she wanted to study conflict resolution, whatever, because that that was so disastrous. I mean, I don't know how many listeners will remember that, but it ended up with, I I believe over a hundred people killed, um, just an absolute disaster. One of the, one, you know, something that no one was happy about how you had us read the transcripts or something in one of our classes. Yeah. yeah that, was, building. that was her dissertation oh, okay. and uh, her, and she titled her book. And I remember her talking about this when I was in grad school, when the parties bring their gods to the table mm. and, um, and lessons learned from Waco, Texas. And, 
what was so interesting to me is it was clear the Branch Davidians, they were a religious group. Um, their leader, David Koresh, claimed he was a prophet, was talking to yeah. God, whatever. So that's like, that's kind of clear. But what do you mean by the FBI brought their gods to the table? Like they weren't, they weren't bringing any sort of like, they weren't claiming prophetic or that they were talking to God or getting revelation or whatever. And I thought one of the keenest insights in that book is that we all bring our gods to the table. Yeah. They don't always look like God with a capital G, like that we're referring to a heavenly father or what mm-hmm. have you. Um, but our God is like whatever belief system we believe to be absolute um, and, and true. And there can be no negotiation from that because I can't deviate from what I know um, to be true. And so that's easy to sort of see in religious belief systems or whatever. But the FBI had a system that was actually very similar um, to that, though it wasn't based off of any religious belief system. It was based off of belief of law and order and the Constitution and right and wrong. And, and you know, when they see someone like David Koresh and he shot at their agents, it doesn't matter like what the context was. It wasn't matter that they were raiding um, the compound. It wasn't didn't matter that they had an apocalyptic worldview um, that saw this as an attack on on their faith and what have you. All that mattered was that these lunatics shot at us. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's a very clear path now to how we deal with people like that and what we do with people like that that led you know to disaster and not that was their God. And so I, I think about this a lot in deep-rooted conflict. And again, we're talking about groundwork and roots mm-hmm. and 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 the th- the things that get deep. Because there's a sense for all of us, including me, that there are certain truths that I have that are non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. These are certain things that I believe that that can't be changed, and that I'm at my truest self when I'm defending those things. Uh, and 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 so I, I think I was telling you I was just at a conference uh, last week, and someone asked me, "Yeah, but what if we have the truth, mm-hmm. right? And and what if?" What if we know we're right? Yeah, and 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 if we're collaborating with this other group, it somehow like dirties or sullies that truth in a, in a way that that just feels wrong. And so I get it. I'm for peace building. I'm for like you know collaboration or whatever. But there's some things where you just have to stand your ground. And we got in a long conversation, and maybe we can have it here today about what what does that mean? My ground. Yeah. Um. And and what is that actually? And, and where can maybe this be a part of self-deception um, that comes into conflict, believing that there is my ground and instead of thinking about it as, as you just said, our ground. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's so interesting. Something that I've, uh, I found myself saying at different, different moments and engaging with people or in our curriculum is, uh, along the lines of justification, but, but specifically we start to cloak our our poor behavior or our, our, uh, you know, our dehumanization of others with values like, Mm. well, you know, I'm just trying to do the right thing here or even, you know, not just the deep conflict. It's just the subtle little day-to-day things. If I'm just, I'm just trying to be honest, you know, (laughs) I might've said something hurtful to a friend or a colleague, but I'll say, I'll cloak it with a value of, I'm just trying to be honest. I'm trying right. to be, I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to be transparent here. Transparent. That's and, a very important value. Yeah. It's a very important value. And so we start to cloak some of those things um, with values, but in, you, you bring that to this, this deep rooted conflict. And I like the term, you know, gods, it's not always the God with the capital G, but we bring those to the table. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's, then it's real talk here. It's not, it's not just a little, well, I'm just trying to do the right thing. It's no, this is fundamental to to 
how I make up my whole entire universe. So I'm not backing down from it. Yeah. And and one one of the things that it leads to, and I know this is a, like a hot term right now, and it's it's a loaded term, but this this idea that because of that, the virtuous thing to do is call people out. Mm. Right? You're doing something, you believe something that I know to be wrong and untrue, and therefore my job uh, is the 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 right thing to do for peace and justice is to call you out. Um, point out where your thinking is flawed or your behavior um, is flawed in such a way that people can see how wrong you are. And then occasionally that leads to cancel culture right Mm -hmm. now. You don't deserve to have a job or um, to be with this organization or in this community anymore. Like your belief system or your thoughts or whatever have now um, gotten you to the point that you can't exist in our community um, together. So we're going to expel you um, from it and using different tools. And And this is something that politically the left and the right do. This is something that religious people do um, all the time. And and from a mediator's perspective, from like a from somebody who sort of believes in peace building and collaboration, I, I can't think of anything that is more harmful towards long term mm. uh, peace. In the short term, I understand the rationale. We need to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. We need to speak up when we see injustices or mistreatment or sexism or racism or whatever it is that, that I'm standing up for. We need to speak up about that because if we don't and if we just stand, stand aside and let it, let it ra- rampage, which a lot of people, good people do, you know, evil wins. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a in a certain way, and so I'm I'm very empathetic to that that part of it because I think that is part of peace building is that we have to raise conflict and we have to expose it for what it is. Um, but at the same time, um, we have to do it in a way. And I, I love Loretta Ross; she's a professor and a human rights a- a- um, advocate that's talked a lot about this. And she uses the word "we call people in" mm-hmm. instead of "call them out." Um, there's still a call. There's still a, a an awareness of that there's something wrong, or that we we believe that there's some sort of norm or or belief that's been violated here. But the point of it all is to call people back into community that maybe have breached whatever the sort of community norms are that we think um, exist, and that actually requires a, a level of seeing the humanity yeah. of people who do things or believe things that are are radically different than than our own as opposed to seeing them as objects and i know you we we've talked a lot about this before and people do it because it's easier to do that like that belief is so repugnant to me or mm-hmm. that behavior is so repugnant to me that the easiest way to deal with you at that point is to make you an object and not a person and then get rid of you as as a way of dealing with a problem and and so we were um i was just in in Middle East, I was working with some folks and um, we, we play this game and we had them play this game where people stand in a circle and then there's three people in the middle of the circle and the, there's the lead person, then the person behind them puts their hands on their hips and the other person puts their hands on their hips and we call mm-hmm. them the snake. Mm-hmm. And the snake's job is to not let the tail of the snake get hit by this nerf ball that's going to be bounced around, around the room. The job of everybody on the circle is to collaborate together to try to get the snake. 
Um, right. And so if the snake is very coordinated and works together, they can, they can, and the lead person use their hands and whatever, they can usually do a pretty good job. But if the, if the outside ring is really good at passing the ball quickly and moving it around quickly, usually the snake ends up tripping over themselves mm-hmm. or whatever, and you, and you can kill the snake. And there's a lot of cool things that sort of come about that. We talk about collaboration, working together, but one of the things I thought was so interesting that somebody said the other day, like my takeaway is people aren't the snake. The problem's the snake. Like we're trying to kill the snake, but people are never the snake. The problem is the snake. And to really get rid of the snake, it actually requires all of us to sort of work together um, to do that. And I, I thought that was like a really deep and sort of profound thing because I think so much of what we're thinking about with call out um, culture or, or um, you know, this sort of stand your ground mm-hmm. is that people are the snake and therefore I need to get rid of people as opposed to those belief systems or those prejudices or whatever are the snake. And how do I create space to, to eradicate those while, while helping people get to that space? Yeah. Yeah. We quickly associate the problem with, with people. Um, so as you were talking, I, uh, I'm going to try to pose a question here and and have you take it on, Um, you know, just thinking of very practical level, this idea of I have my values because I can see somebody hearing that and still being resistant, you know, because we're told, you know, stand up for your values, stand up for what you believe, um, always be true to yourself. So what is it like kind of take us on the journey of what it what it looks like? Because I would venture that most people, they get to a point and they and I, I can relate to this. At where, where I stop, you know, where it's, I'm understanding you, but not anymore because that's breaching, that's breaching what I believe. And so I, there's no, there's nothing else to talk about. And so what, what does it actually look like to, to take the, cause it feels like a risk. It doesn't have to be, but to kind of leave your value, not to cast it away, but just to almost leave it. So you can go into a conversation. So you leave it at the door so you can go in and have a conversation mm. and, and what's this, what's the fear there? And some of this, even, you know, studying my PhD right now in a very secular dominated, um, uh, 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 field of psychology. Right. Uh, but I'm also at a Christian university. So they push us to, to, uh, to, 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 to explore these concepts from a biblical lens. Mm. Right. And so there's a bit of that same thing of, well, I don't want to let go of it, but I also, I want to go understand the dialogue out here. And so how does that relate to when we're in conflict? You know, it might be a political view. It might be a religious view that's really dear to you. What does it, what does it actually look like in real time to Mm -hmm. set that aside enough to go and find that we're actually on common ground? So the last time that I heard this was just last Friday, it was in a public public seminar. Um, I won't get into the details of the topic because then I just feel like we'll, we'll end up talking about the topic yeah. instead of the, the, the principle, but somebody essentially stood up and said this sort of same thing. Like, I get it. This is great. We should all work together, whatever. But sometimes we have to stand our ground. We have the truth. There's a moral imperative here. Uh, and while I appreciate that not everybody believes that they don't believe it, but they're deceived. Mm. Uh, and, and therefore I can't work with someone, you know, who's deceived and, and, and this was, this was more in a, a sort of a religious worldview, but there was also a very strong political worldview that was also sort of coming, coming through with it. And, and, and to me, 
I'm more agnostic about all of that. Like our belief systems are our belief systems. Whatever we believe is true and is motivating the universe is is what's mm-hmm. motivating the universe for us. And so whether you want to call it religion or a political philosophy or an ideology or whatever you want to do, it's your God, um, if you will. And And the first step for me, because I could feel it, I could feel it coming. I teach this stuff. I try to practice this stuff. I fail at it all the time. And mm-hmm. so when I'm, I'm standing up there, here's what I'm thinking, Chris. I know who you voted for. I know what your religion is. Yeah. I know exactly what, even though they were actually being somewhat vague about what their truth is. I know exactly what it is that you're talking about now. You're a bigot. Um, you know, like all of these things are kind of crossing through my head. And, and, and then the resistance starts to swell in me, mm-hmm. uh, even though I'm supposed to be facilitating this, right? So the resistance starts to swell and and I want to give them the counter counter examples, or have you ever thought of this, or yeah. you know, even even sometimes the desire to call somebody out. And I know none of that actually would be effective. It might feel good, right? Uh, it might actually feel really good to go out back at somebody and actually mm-hmm. show how they're wrong or what have you. But it's not going to actually be helpful to them, or probably the other thirty people in the room that were silently nodding their head as they're saying it, saying, "I don't have the guts to actually say what this person said, but I'm thinking the exact yeah. same 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 thing sitting there." And for the other 50, 100 people in the room that are offended that the the person even said this, right? Like yeah. they're sitting there like, I can't believe that I work with this person or that yeah. this person's part of the organization or they're in my community, right? So like, you know, that's happening in the room. And it even happens with me as a facilitator that's trying to have that. Like I, I jumped all those conclusions. So the first thing I have to do is have to remind myself, I don't know anything about this person. I may think that I know a lot about this person because of something that they just said. But I actually don't know anything about this human being. Yeah. And it's all stereotypes right now. Everything that's crossing my mind is stereotypes. And if I give into those stereotypes and just react to a stereotype, I'm now seeing him as an object. I'm doing the ex- ex- exact same thing that he's doing to sort of other people around there. I can't do it. And so to me, the antidote for that right away is that I have to just let go of all that and I have to get curious. I have to get mm-hmm. super curious. So I actually walked up to him and, and, and said, okay, um, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you say truth, what, what does that like look like exactly for you? Because I can, there's a lot of different ways that it could be manifesting itself for him or how he saw, saw that. And how did you come about that truth? Like where, where in your life's journey, did you sort of pick that up? And that became that and almost everybody's got a story, right? right? Everybody's got like some sort of personal experience, mm-hmm. some sort of impactful moment. Um, in their life that has led them to this belief system. And, and sometimes it's just a sense of belonging. This yeah. is the, the, the thing that helped me belong. Sometimes it was a trauma or a tragedy that then really has me doubling or tripling down on a particular value or belief because of the way it's impacted me or a loved one or family or what have you. And I think it's really important to, to humanize, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to humanize all those things. And then, and then my question, that's a really hard question for people to answer. Um, but I, I, tend to phrase it this way anyway, um, because I, th- I think sometimes it's a shock to the system. What are you afraid of here? And now I think for a lot of our culture, we don't want to be afraid of anything. It's mm-hmm. not, not cool to be afraid, but like, what's the fear, right? Um, what will happen if this is eternal truth from God is talking to somebody from the other side, really going to destroy like that truth? Like, is that if it's an eternal truth and you know, God has it like would that, would, would that destroy it? Like, yeah. you know, talking to the other person, asking questions about the other person. I'm showing them basic dignity or, or, or what have you with that. Do? Well, no, no, I don't, you know, that's, well, that's not, that's not what I mean, but that's, you know, that's where it's going. And then I, then I, I always try to get to this space where I say, okay, when you say your ground, stand your ground, I hear this phrase so, so often, 
what does that mean to you, your ground, right? Um, and this is almost always where people start to stumble. We've heard that phrase. We think we kind of know what it means, but once we actually start to peel it away a little bit, just even a little bit, doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, what is your ground? Like, you know, your did, did you come up with this moral law? Like, is this your, you know, your commandment? Is this like something that you have stewardship over mm-hmm. or that you're a leader over or what? I mean, almost the answer to all that is no. So what is your ground that you're standing on? Uh, and to me, the question is, is it possible that other people are also standing on the same ground mm-hmm. and believe it's their ground, mm-hmm. not your ground? Well, yeah, that's the problem, right? It's, it's either mine or, you, or yours. And, and, and you start to try to get to this place of, okay, what else exists on your ground? Is that it? Is this like, it's just a one, your, your, your belief system or ideology has like one particular tenet in life and this is what it is, or is it nuanced and complex, which in, in almost every case it's nuanced and complex and frankly, often contradictory, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes the, these things don't fit neatly um, together. Like what are some of those other things that are part of your ground? Is there anything that you think that those other group might share with you? On that ground, any of these, this one, okay, we're on opposite sides on this issue, but is there any, anything else that are there? Are those things important to you? How important are they to you? In the moment that when someone is feeling really threatened in a particular ideology, the answer is no, this is the most important thing, right? Because this is where I feel um, the threat right now. But as we actually start to talk in almost every case, no, there's deeper, more important, more groundwork values um, that, that we hold together. Is it possible that they may hold that? Um, too. And sometimes the answer is, yeah, I think it's possible. And sometimes their answer is, no, I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. Well, could we find out? Anybody else, you know, and then like you turn to the audience, like anybody else here maybe feel like they're on the opposite side of this issue, but maybe you share some of the values that you just heard from this other side. And one of the really cool things is when I asked this with one person, they said, man, I just can't believe I would, I would have told you before we walked in that I had zero, <laughs> we, we had, we shared zero values in common, but now as they're talking, actually we share a lot of lot of values um, in common, actually. Yeah. Um, and you know, the end goal, I think, as a mediator is that in every space that we stand in, we stand with others. Um, we share this ground. In our families, we share it with our, our partners, with our children, um, with our parents, what have you. In our communities, we share it with everybody there. That There's no community. It's just mine or theirs. It's, it's ours. We share it together. And the only way for that to actually function in a way that's both fulfilling to me and to, to everybody else is to do it together and, and to, to, to say that the ground that we stand on together is actually the sacred and holy thing. Yeah. And there's this concept in, in Tonga about, um, they call it the va, and the va is the space between us and how so much of the Tongan culture is about cultivating that space um, between us, like of all the values in Tonga, th- to cultivate the va and have va lele instead of mm-hmm. va kovi, which is sort of bad va or bad space. Lele is sort of the good, um, the good space. Um, that sits at the at at sort of the rooted end of it. And mm-hmm. so, if I know, look, of all the values that are out there, and they're all important, but if I know that I'm I'm called upon as a community member, as a family member, whatever, to cultivate this space for Valale, um, then I have to be a little bit humble in some of my other truths. Then I have to be a little curious. Yeah. And then I have to figure out the hard work of how do I make space for both of us? Yeah. There's a responsibility um, that we have towards other people. 
I'm sure TK, you know, son have told you some of the curriculum we're working on, but we're talking quite a bit now about the space between. And, uh, but this idea of responsibility towards others, similarly, another, you know, um, Polynesian uh, gesture that you're very familiar with, the Hongi. Um, uh, I was talking with Seamus about this on an episode not too long ago, but, but the first time we did that in the community, um, I showed, I told the community what it was about in groundwork first. I told this story recently with, again, with Seamus. So sorry, listeners for a repeat, but, um, uh, I, I, there's this part of our curriculum where I would bring it up and I would just talk about it. That's all I did was just tell the story of how I learned what the Hongi was and, you know, what it meant to me and things like that. And, and this was the first year of groundwork. And, uh, so we had about 15 leaders in the room, all, you know, CEOs, executive director type leaders and, and so I, I just on the whim asked Salam, hey, you know, Salam, will you, will you, would you be willing to do this with me? Didn't know that he actually would, but he did. And it became this really impactful moment for Salam and I. And then what caught me off guard after that was, uh, was they raised their hands. These leaders raised their hands and said, can we try that with each other? So you have all these leaders that this is totally a foreign cu- culture concept to them, like way out of their comfort zone. It's just not in their culture here that started to turn to each other, put their heads and noses together and do the hongi and share the same breath. And the reason I share this is because when Salam, you know, Salam had this realization that that moment that meant a lot to him. It was really kind of a, uh, a special experience for him. And um, we, we recorded a, a video of, of just talking to him and me about that experience. And in that video, he says, that in that moment he felt this responsibility towards me that he hadn't mm. felt before, you know. Uh, now it took that physical gesture, but mm. he said now he, you know, he he can't help but feel a responsibility towards me after that moment, and that we share this responsibility to one another. So I thought of that when you were talking about um, the va, you know, this this space between us uh, that we are responsible for it, and I think that's a powerful concept. But I'm also thinking of uh, this whole time that you're talking about you know, these deep rooted conflict when people, they have their values, they, they have their walls that they put up. And I know you engage a lot in right in the thick of it, you know, uh, when people are in dire need of a mediator in dire need of, of some sort of intervention. And, um, I've done a, you know, a fair amount of, of mediation and, and, uh, it was one of those things that, that I kind of admired when I first started learning peace building and, and I thought I was decent at it. Um, but then I got into it doing quite a bit here and I realized that it's really tough, right? Yeah. One, it's really hard. Um, but I also would just would get so frustrated because I would see the same story over and over. And and part of the reason of some of the fuel behind groundwork was, you know, I, I remember sitting in this this really high stake mediation, um, probably my second year here. And and I I had engaged in this, and these were two executives of a very large organization. And I had been engaged in this far too long, long, it was, it was just way, it was way after when intervention needed to happen. So it was tough to even mend anything. And we made a little bit of progress, but I remember sitting there thinking, why is this happening, you know, now? And uh, so going to this idea of groundwork and, and helping people see that we have the same ground, some of the motivation behind groundwork was, was how do we, <laughs> how do we pre-build those relationships mm-hmm. and pre-build those connections um, and help people get to this space before 
the conflict hits. Doesn't mean that it's not going to get hard and difficult mm-hmm. when conflict arises. But I'd say one of the philosophies at Groundwork is is we're trying to develop those relationships and those connections now, so that when crisis does hit, when disconnection does hit, that people can come together because they've already discovered yeah. we have the same values, we care about the same things. I see you, I know you, so we're going to solve this. Yeah, you're preparing the for peace, which is a lot easier to do than putting out the fire once it's running yeah. r- rampaging mm-hmm. around. And look, I feel mediation is really hard. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've actually noticed over the last you know five or six years is I actually think that some of the the nobility of the profession or that people like admire the work of mediators do is that there's been a kind of a turn away from it. But that sitting between two people when I believe there's a clearly a right side and a clearly a wrong side and and fostering some sort of collaborative agreement is in some ways empowering evil or um, allowing uh, you know, allowing a person who I don't think should have a say or a vote um, in this have a vote that that somehow there's there's something about the mediator itself that is actually facilitating this to happen and and, and they and they shouldn't and and even some of my former students have have reached back out to me and say you know look I I loved what I learned but I think this is just I just think this is wrong like you just again you have to take a stand. Um, and that there's some people that shouldn't be mediated. There's some people that shouldn't be collaborated with. There's some people um, that you have to really draw that line there. And how can you, as a mediator, like sit with them, you know, sit mm-hmm. down with them. And and I bet there's people even listening to this podcast right now that are saying like, you know, notice I haven't given any details, but they're, they're going to bring their own worldview to this yeah. and saying, is, is, is Chad saying that we should collaborate with racists or are is, you know, Chad saying that we should, you know, collaborate with atheists or, you know, I mean, you know, you can, you can fill in the blank wherever yeah. your powerful worldview um, has the other um, right now. And, and, and so I think the thing that I, I would say to all that is to me, where the empathy lies is with the people that are in the conflict, like as hard as it is to be a mediator, it's actually harder to be the one in the con- that has to, that has to do something that's, that's really yeah. Scary. So I, I want to read this. I, was, I just found this quote the other day, and um, this is Miroslav Volf. Um, and he's in, in the conflict field, but also sort of thinking about theology in this. And I, I found that this, this just like blew me away because I think this is speaking in part to a fear that's animating a lot of this, right? Like yeah. the fear of like what will happen to me and what will happen to my truth and what will happen to everything that I believe if I encounter and stand in this space with this other person. So he says, finally, there is the risk. I love this. The risk of embrace. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. What is the risk of embrace? I open my arms, make a movement of the self towards the other, the enemy, and do not know whether I will be misunderstood, despised, even violated, or whether my action will be appreciated, understood, and reciprocated. So the, the risk of embrace is that I could be misunderstood. I could be despised. I could actually even be hurt um, because somebody could try to take advantage of me stepping into that space, or it's possible that I could be appreciated, understood, reciprocated. I can become, he says, a, a savior or a victim, possibly both embraces grace and grace is a gamble always. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I think about how hard that is to extend grace, to extend vulnerability 
to embrace something that is scary or unknown to me in, in a hope, in a belief, in the goodness of people, that it will lead to respect, appreciation, collaboration, but knowing very well that it may not. That it might not. That it may not. Um, what a scary, scary place to be there. It's also scary for me as a mediator because I also know that as I'm encouraging people to step in the space, it may go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. It may. It happens. Um, people take advantage. Um, people, you know, uh, twist people's words around. People uh, misread, or even just because of their own pain and their own scaredness, even stepping into that space, they're still so defensive. Yeah. They can't feel or see um, the other side. But, you know, um, I also have worked in some really tough, tough conflict zones around the world. And I've seen where the lack of space and the lack of willingness and the increase in fear has led to the point that no, there's no space for embrace anymore. Um, and that is the thing I fear. Yeah. Uh, as much as stepping into the unknown is a scary, risky place, refusing to step into it. Just hoping that as long as I hold my ground and what what have you, that that will somehow lead to peace. It it leads to war. Mm-hmm. It leads to violence. It leads um, to disconnection in powerful, profound ways that have generational impacts. And so I think as, as a conflict mediator, that fear is a real one, right? Like that fear of embrace is a real one, but the fear of a lack of embrace mm-hmm is 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 much higher and and as i look at on my own country and around the world and stuff that's there it we're heading mm-hmm. to the space where we can't embrace people anymore um and we're heading down a space where i've worked with some of those countries and some of those groups and see what's coming next and whatever it is that we fear about embracing them right now our fear should be much higher of what happens um when it ultimately leads yeah. to war yeah what it can lead to um Wow, this is uh, powerful stuff, and <clears throat> my voice is about it's about gone. Um, no, this is a lot to think about. Lots running through my mind. Um, such relevant relevant topics, and uh, I think from large scale to small scale, whatever you know, whoever's listening and and wherever we're at in life, I think that the same principle applies. Whether it's a kind of a silly argument with a child or a, or a loved one or a colleague, to you know, people on the other side of the the political aisle to people that, you know, are actually trying to harm us in some way. Um, I think that these principles you're, you're talking about are, are true and that's the common truth. Um, cause there's always, there's always the, uh, the alternative <laughs> and, and it's funny you say that too, cause I would even, and talking about mediation, I, I would actually kind of use that as a, as a strategy that I would talk about with people is you, well, what's the alternative to us yeah. trying to to venture into that space. And I didn't use that language of space, but what's the alternative? Yeah. Because you've already know, you already know how bad it is now. And what's the alternative if it gets worse? Yeah. Back to getting to yes, the BATNA, the best alternative to mm-hmm. a negotiated agreement, which often um, the, the problem with us as human beings is that we overestimate our chances of winning and underestimate <laughs> yeah. our chances of the worst possible scenario. Yeah. I'm coming or we think the best alternative is is actually an alternative when it isn't, isn't an alternative. Oh, they just go away. They yeah. Die. I literally had somebody say the other day, what's the best alternative? They die. Yeah. Like, are, are, is, are you going to like yeah. hasten that along? Yeah. Are you going to do that? <laughs> well, no, but you know, I can, I can dream, right? A car crash or, you know, die in their sleep or whatever. Um, 
And it's, it's also this thing that we've talked about a lot. I, I, I told the story in the book about um, one, my conflict professors told me early on, you can be right, or you can have peace. And, um, but, but you rarely can have both and how often we think right is peace. Um, but it's, it's often just more mm-hmm. war. Um, and, and I, I think about that all the time. Well, I can continue to do this and feel really right about it. Yeah. I've called these people out. I've stood my ground. I've, I've stood up for what I believe and I can feel so right about it, but I'm no further, no closer to the sort of peace or world or society that I want by doing so yeah. than I was before I did. And in fact, I might actually be um, a little further. And it reminds me, one of my favorite books is um, by this author, Donna, Donna Hicks, and she writes a book about dignity yeah. and, this, and the importance of dignity in conflict and how critical it is that any sort of agreement that we get as mediators that we work together that at the forefront of that is that we're trying to preserve human dignity there, that we can't have really good transformative work when someone's dignity is, mm. is, is trodden. And she, she says, um, this is a quote from her, uh, the glue that holds all of our relationships together is the mutual recognition of the desire to be seen, heard, listened to, and treated fairly, to be recognized, understood, to feel safe in the world. When our identity is accepted, when we feel included, we are granted a sense of freedom and independence and a life filled with hope and possibility. And I, I, I always sort of think about that as a mediator, like, where am I, where am I trying to steer this? I'm not trying to steer this particular outcome or the particular yeah. problem solved, but can I get to a place where people can feel seen and heard, um, listened to, and they feel like they're being treated fairly? Um, can they feel safe? Um, can they feel like they're, they're accepted and, and included? Mm-hmm. And that they have some autonomy to to also be in part the the um the masters of their ship, yeah. um, the captains of their ship. Uh, you know, if I can create space like that for people, and both people are feeling that in the same space, something really powerful and beautiful is coming from it. Yeah, and that's uh, to me what uh, what you taught us in in peace building is to do that right, um, and it starts with with me, right? Starts with us changing mm-hmm. first and, and, and then being able to, to help others get to that place. Cause we're all on the same, same journey, right? Just in a meeting with two executives yesterday, um, helping them work through their, their organizational challenges. And we came to this conclusion that, that out of all the different details we're talking about, that what we're trying to get to is not a destination. It's just the journey, right? Mm. And we're on the journey together. So, um, to me, that's how I see uh, peace building in a lot of ways. It's not a destination. It's a journey that we're on. Um, and I'm, uh, grateful again for you. We got to wrap up, uh, but, uh, grateful that, uh, I've been a part of your, your journey and, and you mine. I'm, I'm so gr- glad that we cross paths and in many ways, and some of those ways I've shared on the, this episode, you've been, a, an influential person in my life. So, um, I never, uh, want to pass up an opportunity to continue to learn from you and, and seek your wisdom and, and allow other people that I'm now able to influence, learn from you as well. So appreciate you brother. And and I'm glad you can make it out here and, and join me for a quick episode. Yeah. Well, um, look, as a, as a professor, like there's nothing cooler than seeing your former students going out and creating space and creating things that you never even dreamed up or thought of and like taking these ideas and building on them and like what you've created here. It's like, 
it's really powerful and cool. But then as your friend, um, because it's also cool that we've been able to have a relationship together. Just like, I couldn't be prouder to know you and see like the work that, that you're doing and all the people that you've brought in, including my son, uh, actually, um, the, the way you've influenced him. And so this is really powerful stuff. Appreciate you, man. Appreciate you. And you've, you've contributed to our, our show today. So it's a lot to think about and anybody listening in on this, I hope you, uh, taking some notes and then they're thinking about different relationships, different environments in your life. So again, I'll apologize to everyone for my lack of voice today, but, uh, I hope everybody's doing well and until next time, be safe. 